0: Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We praise You, Lord, again, and we thank You for Your Word. It is so uh, such a privilege, Lord, that You've given us this love letter, Lord, that You've written to us, Lord, that it's living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, You desire to use Your Word, Lord, to, to cut into the depths of our hearts, Father, and to transform us and, and conform us more and more into Your image. So, Lord, we ask, Lord, that You would speak to us this morning. I pray that each heart here would be receptive. And, Father, we know, Lord, that... That, Lord, nothing happens by chance. And, Lord, it's a divine appointment that You've given us here in this building together this morning. And we thank You that You're here in our presence. And, Lord, again, we ask that You would be our teacher, minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Title of the message this morning, Reactions to Coming Conflict. And really, as the day, now the hours are drawing near for Jesus Christ to be crucified, the time is very short. And we're going to see how different people react as the cross becomes near. And it's really going to be extremely different ways. And you know what? The same is true in our lives. As conflict comes, as difficulty comes, and as the time of our redemption draws near, as our time of being drawn home draws near, you know what? There are going to be different ways that we react. And we're going to see some examples of that this morning. As the cross draws near, we'll see these three different reactions. First of all, we're going to see the reaction of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do in times of conflict, in times of difficulty? You know, Jesus knew that the cross was before Him. He knew the amount of torment He was about to face. He knew that He was going to be separated from the Father. He knew that the sin of all mankind was going to be placed upon Him. And how did He react in the time of conflict as this cup of of judgment, of, of our judgment, would be upon Him? This cup of suffering would be upon Him. What did Jesus do? Jesus prayed. Now then we'll look at a man by the name of Judas. And last week we saw that Jesus uh, spoke of the fact that he would betray him. And how does Judas react when conflict comes? Judas, rather than seeking the Father, seeks after riches. Instead of having an eternal focus and trusting in Almighty God after walking with Jesus for three years, he's going to instead put riches as being the most high focal point in his life. He's going to seek after wealth and he's going to be willing to betray the Savior In a pursuit of wealth. So when conflict comes, what does he do? He seeks after worldly things. And then lastly, we're going to see Peter. And Peter, as Jesus prays, and as we see Judas betray Him, we're going to see Peter deny Him. And why does Peter deny Christ? Peter denies Christ because Peter makes the mistake of trusting in his own abilities and his own flesh. Peter was a man who boasted. Very greatly, And as he would boast, he would always boast in his own ability, in his own flesh. If we boast in anything the Bible says, we're to boast in the Lord. Amen? We have nothing to boast about, but we can boast in Him. We can talk about how great our God is, but we should never talk about how great we are. So then after that, we will see the result of our Savior's submission to the Father as He is beaten and mocked and scourged and accused in our place and that He was willing to do it all out of His love for us. So we'll pick up in verse uh, 35. But just by review, last week Jesus prophesied of His coming death. He told them it was coming. He instituted the Lord's Supper, explaining the meaning of each of the elements. Remember that they had been celebrating Passover for hundreds and hundreds of years and they didn't fully understand what those elements meant. And Jesus stood before them and said, This bread you've been breaking, that's My body. And this cup that you've been drinking, that's My blood. And He said, I will not, I will not have this feast until I have it with you again in heaven, in paradise. He predicted that one of His apostles would betray Him. And remember how we saw the apostles just... Initially, the response was a humble one. Lord, is it I? didn't even know their own hearts. Am I the one that's going to betray You? And then just moments later, what did they start doing? Who remembers? Who remembers from last week? They started arguing over which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine... Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? And then before you know it, they start going, yeah, it probably is you. Dude, I'm better than you. And before you know it, these guys are arguing about how great they are. And again, that's a the pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's surely true of Peter. Jesus then told Peter that Satan had asked for him. And after Peter boasted and said, Lord, no matter what you say, I'll, I'll, I'll die for you. Lord, I, I don't care what Satan wants to do with me. He can try to sift me, but Lord, I'll never betray you. And the Lord said, Peter you're going to betray me, you're going to deny me three times even before the rooster crows. So let's pick up in verse 35 as we look at Jesus warning His disciples of the conflict that was to come. Verse 35, And He said to them, When I sent you without money, bag, knapsack, or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. Now during the ministry with Jesus, the the disciples had been sent out with special authority and wherever they went, God had provided for them. And God had also protected them. And... Our Savior at the time was very popular as a rabbi even from the world's perspective because He did these wonderful miracles. And the, the Jewish religious leaders would not dare touch them. Nobody would dare touch them. So as they went out, they had nothing to fear. There was no conflict. They went out and, t- and shared the gospel or the good news of who Jesus was without compromise. They could go out and perform miracles and do wonderful things. And the, comp- the conflict was not there. But Jesus is now going to tell them that things are about to change. It's not going to be that way anymore. Verse 36. He said to them, But now, he who has money, a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. Jesus quotes a messianic, passage of Scripture in Isaiah 53 and He says, I will be numbered among My transgressors. Jesus is going to be numbered among the criminals. Jesus is going to face death. His life is going to... to conflict is coming. And so the hour had come, the situation would change radically and we're moving into a whole new new way of living. If they arrest me, they're going to arrest you, is what he's saying. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they're going to beat me, they're going to beat you. And it's amazing that these men that he's speaking of, every one of them would be martyred. And we know that John was you know, put out on the island of Patmos, and and history tells us that he was boiled in oil but wouldn't die, and then they put him out on the island. But for the most part, these guys were all martyred. And just as Jesus was going to be crucified, just as Jesus was going to be mocked and beaten, so too would they. And He said, you know what? Things have changed, you guys. I'm going away. The ministry is going to be in your hands. And you need to be ready. Because there's going to be conflict on the other side. Verse 38. So they said, Lord, look here are two swords. And He said to them, it is enough. Now again, how do they respond to His spiritual discernment or wisdom? The same way that we often respond. The same way that we see the, the apostles before Pentecost respond virtually every time. From a physical perspective. He's telling them, be ready. Things are going to change. And They're like, Lord, we've got two swords. Right? Here we go, we're ready. Right? We're ready to go fight every battle. We've got two swords. And when he says, it is enough, he's not saying that's an adequate number. When you look in the original language, what he's saying is, enough about that. He's saying, you guys just don't get it. Okay, enough about that already. You don't fully understand what I'm trying to tell you. That what you're about to face is not a physical battle, but a spiritual one. You know, the Bible says... In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, and rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. We are fighting a spiritual battle, not a physical one. God is not looking for the most yoked people. God's not looking for the biggest and the strongest, right? He's looking. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord search to and fro among the whole, earth, seeking one He can show Himself strong on account of. And He's not looking for ability, but availability. He's looking for a broken vessel that says, Lord, I want You to use Me. And we see that these guys are just not getting it. They don't understand that it's a spiritual battle, not a physical one. They're ready to rage war. But you know what? There's a lot of people out there raging war for their gods. But you know what? It's not about a physical battle. Nobody should ever be saved because we beat him over the head until they confess Christ. Amen? You know, the the Muslims, you know, and I got no problem telling you that the Muslims are a tool of Satan. Okay? It's how it is. It's reality. Well, it's not politically correct, Pastor Dave. Well, it's not about being politically correct, it's about being biblically accurate. Amen? And the Muslims, how their whole faith started was they went around with swords in their hand and they put a sword up to your throat and they said, if you do not confess that Muhammad is a prophet and Allah is God, we're going to slit your throat. Had a lot of converts. Amazing how that works. You know, if you're going to die, you become a Muslim. And it's amazing to me that, that this re- religion that began with violence continues with violence. Now, we need to pray for the Muslim people because Jesus loves them. Amen? He loves them and He died for them and He desires to have a relationship with them. But Muhammad is not a prophet. And you know what? It's not about using a sword to draw people into the kingdom. It's kindness that leads people to repentance. It's the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. And it's a spiritual battle that we fight, not a physical one. So now we're going to move on and see three vastly different reactions as the cross draws near. We'll begin by looking at our Savior. Look at verse 39. Coming out, He went to the Mount of Olives as as He was accustomed, and His disciples followed Him. And when He came to that place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now Jesus left out of Jerusalem, and it was His custom very often when He was there, He would go down, and when you think of the Mount of Olives, don't think of, you know, it's not a huge mountain. It's not like Mount Sinai, right? It's a mount. It's like a hillside in a sense almost. And they'd go up the, the hillside, a short walk, they could walk up it, and they would go up there to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there the Lord's custom was to go there and to seek the Father's will. And isn't it awesome to you that Jesus Christ, the Son of the Living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator of the universe, would go away and would seek the will of the Father? You know why? Because He's our example. He's the example for us. We are Christians, followers of Christ. And He would go away and He would go to that garden and there He would pray. Now it says that place is the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. Now it's interesting to me that we see from John's account that when He went to the Mount of Olives, He had to cross over a brook. And the brook was called the brook Kidron. Kidron means murky or dark. It's also interesting to note that this would be right about the time or the hour that all the sacrifices were being made for Passover in Jerusalem. Literally as many as a quarter of a million animals were probably sacrificed. And where the the blood would run is into the brook Kidron. So as Jesus was walking up to the Mount of Olives and He passed over the brook Kidron, what He saw was a brook filled with blood. Blood of the sacrificial lambs. Lambs that were being sacrificed for Passover. And here He is, the Lamb of God, preparing Himself to be the sacrifice and He crosses over this this river filled with blood that means dark or murky and goes over this darkness and enters into this place, Gethsemane, which means oil press. And the oil press is pointing to suffering, that the oil would be pressed out of Him. And it's interesting that the oil that it talks about is oil that was used for anointing people. So our Lord was going, and as He, pro- he passed over this brook Kidron, darkness, murky, He headed into Gethsemane, this oil press, this place of suffering. What a clear picture of where Jesus was headed. Now Jesus often went there. And as he again, he would leave the city and he would go to that place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we know when he got there, according to the other Gospels, that all eleven went with him, but eight remained at the beginning of the garden and he went deeper into the garden and he took Peter, James, and John with him. It's interesting to me that often he would take these, these guys, his inner circle with him, Peter, James, and John. They were there with him when he went in and healed Jeru's daughter. He went in and he only called those three in and they saw him raise this girl from the dead. They were with him when he went to the Mount of Transfiguration and revealed his glory to them. And then they would be there with him in the garden as he was praying, preparing himself for his death. It's interesting to me that every time that he drew those three away, it was something that pointed to death. And they would be the ones that would be given the ministry. They would be the ones that would take over when Jesus left. They would be the ones that God would use in a mighty and a powerful way. He warns them, look at verse 40, and He says to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What's the key to you overcoming temptation in your life? The Bible says this, it's very clear. You are tempted every single day, if not every single hour, if not every single minute. Temptation comes all the time. And where does temptation originate? Where does it originate? Satan. The Bible says that the Lord never tempts us. Never. Ever. He does not tempt us. But Satan does. And you know what? Quite often, he's not going to tempt you with things that won't work. You know, Satan won't tempt me with cocaine. He could, put, they could They could back up a dumpster with nine, you know, a 900-mile thing of cocaine and put it in my driveway. No temptation. I'm going to walk by and go, Man, get that stuff out of here. That's not going to bother me. Now, other people, that would be a temptation. But he knows my weaknesses, and he's going to tempt me with the things that he knows that I struggle with. And he does the same with you. Satan is a defeated foe, but he's, he's not stupid. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's dumb enough to have missed the Savior, and that's as dumb as you can get, but when it comes to being able to fool and trick and draw people away, he's a genius. And so what he does, he comes to you and he tries to draw you away with those very things. So how do you respond to temptation? The Lord makes it very clear here. He says, pray. Pray. When, before temptation comes, pray. Pray that God will give you strength. When temptation comes, pray that God would, as He makes the way of escape, that you would be faithful to flee from it. Because temptation will come. Pray. Tough times are coming. Now as He's praying, where is He? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you might wonder, why is He in a garden? Now here's a couple things to think about. First of all, where did mankind begin? In the Garden of Eden. Where did man fall into sin? In the Garden of Eden. The first Adam brought sin upon all of mankind. In the garden, in the garden of Eden, we see Adam, then we see disobedience, then we see sin, and that resulted in death. Now we come to another garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus has been referred to as the second Adam. That's what He's called in several places, and He's the second Adam. And so as the Messiah... He, in Gethsemane, yet another garden, where man had been doomed and separated from Almighty God in one garden, here in this garden of Gethsemane, in this oil press, in this place of suffering, God was preparing to restore sinful man back to Holy God. And so in Gethsemane, Jesus, through obedience... Brought salvation and life. The Bible tells us in Revelation that, there's, that history will one day end and there will be yet another garden. It will be a heavenly city talked about in Revelations 21 and 22. So in Eden, you had disobedience and sin and death. In Gethsemane, you had obedience, salvation and life. And in heaven, you'll be an eternal garden of joy, peace and the glory of God. You know what? Nothing happens in the Bible by chance. The fact that He was in a garden brought us back to Eden and Him restoring us back to what His original plan was for mankind. So Jesus prays. This is verse 41. And He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and He knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours, be done. Notice both the anguish and the submission of our Savior. You know what? Jesus freely went to the cross, but it wasn't easy. Some people think because He was God that He just went to the cross and it was no problem. Let me tell you something, as we're going to see in this text, it was the most heinous thing that ever happened in the history of mankind. And as Jesus went and He knew what was before Him, remember He's 100% God, but He's also 100% man. And as He went to the cross, He knew the suffering that was before Him. And He cries out to His Father and says, if you can take this cup from Me, if there's any other way that we can redeem Sinful man, back to holy God. Let's do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. Not only a heart of of surrender to the Father, a heart of obedience to the Father, but a heart of anguish over what was before Him. You know, sometimes as Christians, we think that our life should just be perfect. There should never be any anguish. There should never be any, you know, sacrifice. We should never have to give anything up. We just want to be on the cruise ship to heaven. But you know what? If we're followers of Jesus Christ, look what He did for us. How much more should we do for Him? Amen? And so often, we just want it to be easy. You know, I want to to just cruise and then get to heaven. I don't want to be uncomfortable. But our Savior said, let this cup pass from me. In obedience to the Father He did this, but also He did it not just in obedience to the Father, but out of love for us. For He knew what was before Him and He endured it. Now I want to say this. His death was so incredible, and we talked about this many times. We'll talk about it a little bit today, but we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. His death was so incredible, I don't think we can even fully understand what He went through, and we won't until we get to heaven. No matter how horrendous we think it is, it was worse than that. We're going to see that as we continue on in the text. Verse 43. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. It's interesting to me that in the midst of difficulty and trial, God sends a ministering angel. You know what? When we're going through times of difficulty and struggle and trial, and we cry out to the Lord, do you know that He's right there and He wants to comfort us in the midst of that? If you're here this morning and you're going through some real heavy-duty stuff in your life, you're going through some difficulty, I want you to know that God wants to comfort you. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the great what? He's the Comforter. He comes to convict us, but also to comfort us. The Bible talks about having peace that surpasses all understanding. That can only come from God. Not peace that comes from understanding. The peace that surpasses all understanding. And here the Lord is crying out. He's the Son of the living God, but He's crying out to His Father. And a ministering angel is sent to Him. So too, as we cry out to the Lord, does He send those to minister to us. Verse 44. And being in agony... He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Adam fell in the garden. And the curse that he had, what does it say? What was the curse that happened to Adam in the garden? Remember, it said that there will be pain in childbirth. Right, Steph? (laughs) Days away. Pain in childbirth. And it also says that the man will toil in the ground and he will toil with sweat from his brow to provide for His family, to make bread. That He will toil and sweat will come from His brow. And that was the curse that came in the garden as the result of sin. Now here we are in the garden of Gethsemane and coming from the brow of our Savior is blood. Blood that would pay the price and restore sinful man back to holy God. That would restore that sin of Adam in the garden that caused him to sweat and to toil. That Jesus would bring restoration. And here He is back in the garden, and just as Adam would have to sweat, and we have to sweat to toil for our bread, now He sweat great drops of blood to pay the price for us to restore us back to our heavenly Father. What an awesome thing. That's in Genesis 3.18 if you want to look at it. Now He nearly dies... As He's praying, Jesus sweat drops of blood out of anguish over His coming death and separation. You know what? Again, for Jesus to go to the cross, even though He's God, it was not easy. This was such a heavy moment in our Savior's life that He was praying with such anguish and intensity that He sweat drops of blood. Man, that's, that's prayer. Prayer, when you're, it's intense. There's anguish. It's from your heart. It's not, you know, a Holy Spirit missile over your Wheaties, right? It's not a, you know, dear Lord, think of it as food. Not, that's not prayer. Prayer is drawing near to the Lord. Notice that Jesus, the Son of the living God, had a place where He went away and got alone with the Father. And so too should each of us as His followers have a place where we go and we go get alone and we spend time with our Father. You know what, I am absolutely convinced that if we as a church, this this small church right here, if each one of us, had a prayer life and we got away with the Lord and we sought His face and we prayed on behalf of this county, I absolutely know that God would bring revival here. He would begin in our hearts. Amen? And that we would be so changed and so in love with Him that we couldn't help but be contagious. And our Savior went away and anguish was in His heart. And He sweat great drops of blood. You know, there's actually a medical term for what happened to Him. And I'm going to Mess this up and Dr. Webb's going to give me heat after church. But it's called hematidrosis. And it's literally where where there's such heavy anguish and suffering that literally you begin to sweat drops of blood. And that's what happened to our Savior. So he was in anguish because of his coming death and separation, but he was also in anguish out of his love for me and his love for you. You know what? As He was in the garden, He was thinking about us. Why would He endure that pain? Why would He suffer that way? Why would He go to the cross? Why would He be beaten? Why would He be mocked? Why would He be scourged to the point of death? Why would He allow all this when He could just call down a million angels and smoke everybody anytime He wanted to? But why would He endure it? He'd endured it because He loves you and He loves me. That's the God that we serve. You know, people portray our God to be a God with a lightning bolt up in the sky just waiting to smoke people when we make a mistake. It's the exact opposite. Our God loves us so much. He's a God of compassion, a God of grace, and a God of mercy. And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And He was in anguish because He loves you so very much. Verse 45. And He rose up from prayer, and He came to His disciples, and He found them sleeping from sorrow. And He said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now, this is really sad. Can you imagine? These guys have traveled with the Lord. The Lord takes them away with him. He's about to face the most incredible moment in the history of all mankind. He takes his inner court, you know, the, the, the main three guys, his inner circle. He takes them away with him as those who would comfort him and pray alongside him. And what do they do? They fall asleep. In John's account, it says they went back, he went back three times, and every time he went back, they were sleeping. And he kept waking them up and saying, pray. And he'd go back and he'd come back and they're sleeping again. Be honest. How many of you have ever fallen asleep when you're praying? Raise your hand. I've done it. It's no bueno, is it? You're praying and you wake up the next morning. What what happened? You know, that's not good. Drool on your Bible or something. That's not good. But that's what happens. These guys are napping when they should be praying. And you know what? It just broke our Savior's heart. Because he saw these guys and they're overcome physically and he didn't have a mind where it should be spiritually. In sorrow and difficulty we should not be sleeping but praying lest we enter into temptation. Look at verse 46 again. This is a great verse to put on your alarm clock. You know, just type it out and put on top of your alarm clock. Look what it says. Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. Isn't that good? So when the alarm goes off rise and pray. That's a good way to start your day. Amen? You know what? Pray before the day starts. Pray for wisdom, for direction that the Holy Spirit would watch over and protect you and guide and lead your day that you might not enter into temptation. Jesus sweating drops of blood. What are His disciples doing? Sleeping. You know what? I know that God purposely picked out guys who were a mess so that we could relate to them. These guys were fishermen and they don't catch any fish anywhere in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? These guys are apostles and they're sleeping. They're a mess. They're always getting out in front of God. They're always doing things contrary to His will. And these are the apostles. We've talked about that. Not the B apostles. These are it. These are 12 guys walking with Jesus, blowing it all the time. That's an encouragement to me. Amen. That lets me know that means God can use a guy like me. If he can use Peter, he can use Dave. Amen. And you know what it is? Peter needed the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that in a few weeks at Pentecost. When we get to the book of Acts, it'll be a little while. So we move on from from Jesus praying to Judas betraying. Look at verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude. And he was called Judas, one of the 12, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, Judas is going to choose riches over his Savior. As hard as that is to believe. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three years, seeing all the miracles, being there when he raised Lazarus from the dead, watching all the awesome things that he had done, and then choosing the price of a slave over serving your Savior? But that's what Judas did. But don't we as Christians sometimes do the same thing? Don't we put our careers before God? Don't we go out and say, well, I've got to work 80 hours this week and I really can't be involved in ministry because I've got to have more money to buy more stuff? You know, buying things that I don't need to impress people I don't know. You know, those kinds of things. And that's what we do. And here's Judas did that. He betrayed the Savior by putting finances and striving after stuff ahead of a relationship with the Savior. And we know that Jesus said it would be better for him if he had never been born. Now, how did Judas know where Jesus was going to be? How did he know to go to the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus didn't tell him he was going to be there. You know how he knew? Because Jesus always went there to pray. Jesus was our our, our Savior, our King, and our God, and he was a man of prayer. 100% God, 100% man, and he prayed. And you know what? Judas knew. Oh, I know where he'll be. He'll be up in that garden praying. That's where he always goes. That's our Savior. May we have that reputation. Amen? May people know that we pray. Man, I know where he's going to be. Oh, it's Sunday morning at 10.30. He's at church. I know exactly where he is. Let's go down there and find him, right? I mean, if they wanted to arrest you, hopefully they would know where you are on Sunday morning. Amen? And that's where they knew about Jesus. They knew he was going to be in the garden. They knew that he was going to be praying. And so Judas brings them to Jesus. Now I want to say this. In John's account, it tells us that he brought a detachment of soldiers, about 600, and he came. Now, can you imagine bringing soldiers to arrest the creator of the universe? How stupid is that? But they come, and it's nighttime, and they're bringing torches with them. Now, if you're up on a mountain, and Jerusalem's down here, and people are coming towards you with torches, do you think you might see them coming? Do you think you might have an idea that they're coming? There's no street lights to block it out. Of course, Jesus knew they were coming. Now, did Jesus run and hide? No. Because they didn't arrest Jesus. Who arrested who? He arrested them. Because remember when they came, they said, Are you Jesus of Nazareth? What did he say? How did he respond? He said, I am. And what did all the people do? They fell over backward. Now, I would think if I'm a soldier and I'm standing there with my armor on, a guy says, I am, and I flip backward on my back. I'm thinking going home is probably a good option right about now. Or repenting, right? Right? Now, it doesn't end there though, because he sees them coming and he gave his life. No one took it from him. He laid it down and they drew near to him. He saw the the crowd coming and he knew what was before him. He had anguished, he had swept drops of blood, but he knew it must happen that you and I could have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's why he was going, because he loves each one of us. Look at verse 48, he says, he kissed him. Now, it's interesting to me that kissing in those days was a sign of, of reverence and devotion. Family members would kiss each other on the cheek. And disciples would kiss their teacher or the rabbi on the cheek as a term of endearment or devotion. And what's amazing to me is that he came and gave him this kiss, but the reality is he was not a part of God's family because he had rejected him. And he was not a disciple of Jesus Christ anymore because he'd walked away from him. But yet he came up and kissed him on the cheek anyway. When the moment of truth came, Judas would be standing with our Savior's enemies. And many today do the same thing. So Jesus was not arrested by men. Jesus freely gave Himself over to them. Verse 49. And when those around Him saw what was going to happen, they said to Him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? You know, I imagine who said that. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, I love how they ask the question, but they don't wait for the answer. Lord, should we, should we attack? we got these two swords. Remember how he told us? We totally misinterpreted that, but we got these swords. What do you think? And before the Lord answers, what is he doing? He's chopping off ears. And I think that this is Peter, the fisherman who can't fish, right? And Peter, the guy who's napping when he ought to be praying, Peter trying to lop off someone's head catches an ear. That's Peter. And we know from the other accounts that's what happened. So Peter, man, Lord, should we, you know, ready, ready, fire, aim. That's Peter, right? And so Peter goes after him and chops off his ear. And you know what? I believe in zeal today, there are many Christians that do a lot more damage in the name of Jesus Christ than they do good. They go out wielding the sword and just start chopping off ears. Instead of loving people and ministering to people and, and, and serving them, kindness leading people to repentance, they walk around with the sword, this sword right here, taking it out of context and just start wailing on folks. You know, the church is not a police station where we arrest people and beat them into submission. It's a hospital where every one of us who's desperate and in need of a touch from God comes to be healed. Amen? That's what this place is. And he took the sword and he lopped an ear off. And what did Jesus do? Look what Jesus did. And Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed them. And quite often I believe the Lord's doing the same thing today. He's healing the wounds of ones who've been struck by an overzealous disciple in the name of Christ. Again, the sword is the Word of God in the wilderness. How did Jesus defeat Satan? What did He use? The Word of God. Every time He tempted Him, what did He do? It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. It is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Right? Jesus responded with the Word. And He responded not angry, not cursing, not pounding on somebody. Again, Zeal is a good thing, but it must always be tempered with love and truth. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. That's why we must speak the truth in love. You stand on a street corner and you can shout truth all you want and blast people and tell them they're going to fry. That's not effective. Amen? Man, if that's why I'm going to turn out if I follow your God, no thanks. And in the same case, we can love people but not give them any truth, and that's just hypocrisy. That's why there must be truth and love. Both things. And Jesus was one who shared truth and love. Again, as I said about the Muslims, do they have zeal? Do they have zeal? Zeal. Do they have love. Do they have truth? No truth? No love. Lots of zeal. That's a bad combination. It doesn't work. It's not effective. Verse 52. Then Jesus said. To the chief priests, captains, and temple of the the temple, and the elders who came to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but in this your hour, this is your hour, and the power of darkness. Now it's interesting. Jesus says, "You know what? I was in the temple, and he didn't do anything." When I was standing before men, this just reveals your true colors. But I just want you to know that this is the hour that was appointed before the foundation of the world. You're not arresting me. I'm submitting to the will of my Father. He's saying it's time. It's the hour of darkness. And isn't it interesting how many times people come at night when they want to attack our Savior in darkness. They don't want to come out in the light. They don't want to deal with Jesus in the light. And you know what? That's why people want to dial down Jesus today because He brings a halogen light onto the sin of all mankind. Jesus prayed, Judas betrayed, and now we're going to see Peter deny. Look at verse 54. Having arrested Him, they led Him and brought Him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. Now here's the first problem, p- mistake that Peter makes. Peter had been trusting and boasting in his flesh. He said, Lord, no matter what happens to You, I'll die for You. And that's probably what he was thinking when he got the sword out and chopped off Malchus's ear. Lord, I'll fight for you. I'm ready. You know, from a physical perspective, I'm Peter, man, I'll do it, let's go. When I think of Peter, I don't know for sure, I just kind of think of a big husky dude with a beard, you know, some big rascally guy, man, you know, like, I don't know, and like some guy living in the woods somewhere. And I just think of him, you know, and he's just lopping off the ear of this guy. And now, you know, Peter's saying, "I'll, I'll fight for you, Lord. But notice that when they take our Savior away, Peter is following what, does the Bible say? At a distance. He's following at a distance. There's no room for distant Christianity. There's no way that you're going to have an impact on a lost and a dying world if your relationship with God is at a distance. If, you're, if God is somebody that's far away from you, then you don't understand Christianity. To be a, someone used mightily by God, your relationship with Him must be the most important relationship you have, bar none. Including your spouse, including your children. Above all else, it's Jesus Christ. He is the most important thing in my life. My, I love Him. I spend 24 hours a day, 7 days a week with Him. I desire to know Him more and more and better and better and deeper and deeper. How close is your walk? Are you following Jesus at a distance? Is Christianity something you do an hour a week? Well, I know I'm supposed to go. I've always gone to church. Probably should go. It's probably a good thing. Or is He your best friend? Do you have that intimate relationship with Him? Are you following at a distance? Are you walking in closeness with Him? How close are you? Verse 54. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Now this is amazing. He goes from following Jesus at a distance to sitting with the enemy. That's what happens, you guys. When you start following at a distance, before you know it, you're in fellowship with the enemy. If you're not walking close to God and drawing near to Him, before you know it, you're hanging out with the world. Here's Peter, and he's seated around the fire. Why is he at the fire? Because it's a place of personal comfort. It's nighttime, it's cold outside, it's a place of personal comfort. And he goes where he's going to be comforted personally, not where he's going to draw near to God spiritually. And as we do that, we're in trouble, we're in danger of falling away from God. You know, the Bible says that we are aliens here, you guys. You know what? As Christians, we're not supposed to fit in. We should be different. Someone calls you a Jesus freak. That's a good thing. Amen? You know what? As Christians... And again, we should love people. We shouldn't be these these brutal people. We should be loving and kind and gracious. And we should be so different in the way we love people that it blows people away. And so Peter instead is comforting himself by the fire. And as he comforts himself by the fire, guess what? As he's hanging out with the enemy, he's a wide-open target for temptation. When you hang out with the enemy, you will be a wide-open target for temptation. You want to know what kind of person you are? Look at the people that you hang around with. The Bible says, bad company corrupts good morals. If you're hanging out with the world, you're going to be like the world. If your best friends are unbelievers not walking with God, I guarantee you they're having a greater impact on you than you are on them if that's where you spend all your time. You need to be salt and light, and we need to seek after. The Bible says, Forsake not to gather yourselves together, and sow the more as the day draws near. As Jesus Christ's return draws near, we should be getting together more and more, not less and less. More and more. This is our family, you guys. When we come together, this is family. I love this. I love when we come on Wednesdays. Whenever we do anything together, it's a blessing. So what does Peter do? He's wide open now. He's hanging out with the enemy. He's in a place of personal comfort. Verse 56. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. With who? With Jesus. As believers, how are they going to know it? How are they going to know that we're one of his followers? Because we've been with him. Remember how it says in the book of Acts that they marveled that they were untrained men, but they had been with Jesus. The only way that people are ever going to come after you and accuse you of being one of His followers is if you spend time with Him. Amen? How do you become like Him? You spend time with Him. Verse 57, But He died and said, Woman, I, I do not know Him. Whoa. Peter, I'll die for you, Lord! I, I, I don't know Him. I'm talking... in. Moments later, from I'll die for you to I don't know him. What happened? He was following at a distance. He was camping around the enemy's fire. He was no longer in fellowship. He was hanging out with the world. Temptation came and he fell. Look at the next verse, verse 58. And after a little while, another said to him, you are also one, you are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Of them is speaking of fellowship. They'd seen Him with other believers. he had seen Him walking with the apostles. So how do people know that we're a follower of Christ? Because we spent time with Him and we're hanging out with other Christians. We're gathering together in His name. Peter fears a young girl. And we know, look at the next verse 59 and 60, and look what it says there. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow is with him. For he is a Galilean. Now the only way they would know that Peter was a Galilean is because of his accent. They heard him speaking, they heard his accent, and they knew it gave him away. And you know what? Not only as Christians will us being with him be a reflection on our lives, and not only that, us being with other believers, but our speech will give us away. Just like it gave Peter away. As Christians, we speak different than the world does. Amen. You know, most of you know I go. I still work only until January, Lord willing. But I go out on sales calls and I sit across from people, and I'll be three minutes into a conversation, I'll stop them, say, "You're a Christian, aren't you?" Well, yeah, I am. How'd you know? I could tell by the way you talk. I could tell it was the Holy Spirit, but I could also tell by your speech. Your speech gave you away. You know, when other people curse and get, man, I could just tell by the love in your speech and the way that you spoke. There's something different about you. That's got to be Jesus. You know what? Peter's speech gave him away. And may our speech give us away as people who follow Jesus Christ. Verse 60, But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. We know from John's account that not only did he deny Christ, but in this case, he literally cursed Him. He swore. I don't know Him. He cursed. Camping by the fire. Following at a distance. He fell away from the Saviour. Now this, to me, is one of the heaviest verses in the Bible. Look at verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine? You've walked with him for three years. You've stood up and said, Lord, I will die for you. And now, in moments, you've said, I don't know who he is. You've said, I'm not, I, I reject that completely. And now you've cursed and said, I don't know him, in anger. And then you look up and Jesus is being brought out by the, the soldiers who are dragging him away. And he looks up and Jesus' eyes look across and they meet Peter's. Can you imagine? You know what? I'll be honest with you. I can to a small degree because I know when I sin, I just, it breaks my heart. It kills me. There's times when I know it's sin if I do it and I do it anyway. How many of you can relate to that? Doesn't it, and doesn't it just, as soon as you did it, then, the, then here's Satan accusing you. Look, you, Christian, why did you do that? And doesn't it just break your heart? Doesn't it just grip you? And I'm thinking, magnify that a thousand times, and there's Peter. He's cursing that he knew him. He's Peter. Peck, you know, the small rock. Chip off the old block. The one that Jesus said, man, you're no longer Simon, but you're Peter. You're no longer shifting sand, but you're the small rock. You're the chip off the old block. And now he's cursing the Savior. And if Jesus' eyes meet him. But I want to say this. I don't believe that when Jesus' eyes met him, that his eyes were filled with anger, or disgust, or even disappointment. You know what I believe? I believe his eyes were filled with compassion for Peter. And you know what? That would break your heart even more, wouldn't it? Jesus looks across and sees you and you and no doubt he's already been beaten. His face is battered. They're dragging him away. And you look over and he sees you. Can you imagine? You know what? If you're here this morning and you feel like, you know what, I've not been walking with God, you know, I, I have walked away from him. I want you to know he's looking at you with eyes not of disgust, not of judgment, and not of anger, but of compassion. He loves you, you are his treasured possession. You can take a million steps away from God and it's only one step back. He loves you so much. And he looked at Peter with eyes of compassion and love, his heart broken to see what he had done, but no doubt, Peter's heart just destroyed. Look at the rest of verse 61. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter did deny Jesus, but you know what else? Peter repented. Peter went out, and wept bitterly. His heart was broken. Why? Because he had sinned against his Savior. He had made the mistake of falling at a distance, getting into fellowship with the world, falling into a place of comfort, denying his Savior. But now the eyes of compassion had met him, and his heart was broken, and he went away in repentance and wept bitterly. And you know what? That is what must happen for there to be restoration. There must be repentance. Amen? Before there can be restoration between holy God and a sinful man, there must be repentance. And we see here that Peter repented. Now we know that Judas went out and hung himself, but he did not repent. Bible says it'd be better for him if he'd never been born. But Peter does repent. And we know that the good news is that God's not done with Peter. Amen. Doesn't God use Peter in a mighty and powerful way? Doesn't he lead thousands to the Lord? Doesn't he plant many churches in the book of Acts? He's used mightily by God. And that's the good news is if you've blown it, And you've walked away from God and you've denied Him with your actions and you haven't been living a Christian life and you've been a mess. I want you to know He's looking at you with eyes of compassion and He still wants to use you. He's not done with you yet. Amen? He's not done. He still has great things. Aren't you glad Peter didn't just quit? Aren't you glad he repented? Because God still used him in a mighty and a powerful way. Love it. that he went away. You know what it says, one of my favorite verses too in the Bible, is Mark sixteen seven when Jesus rose from the dead. You know what he said? You know what they, the, the man said, the angel? He said, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I have risen. For three days, Peter's been broken and weeping and destroyed over the fact that he denied his Savior. And when Jesus was risen from the dead, who does he reach out to first? He says, go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I've risen. What a wonderful God we serve. Amen? Peter's broken and tore up. Can you imagine that word coming to him? You know what? I saw an angel. He said, he's risen. He said, especially to tell you, Peter, that he's arisen. Can you imagine how his heart must have went from being broken to anticipation of seeing his Savior? We know that he ran to the tomb because he wanted to see Jesus. And here's the good news. If you run to him, he's waiting for you because he loves you. And if you've blown it, he's right there. He's a God of compassion, and He wants you to know that He's arisen and tell especially you by your name, whoever you are, whatever you've done, He loves you. He'll forgive you. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Let's finish up. Verse 63. Now, when the men who held Jesus mocked Him and beat Him, and having blindfolded Him, they struck Him on the face and asked Him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many others, many other things they blasphemingly spoke against Him. So Jesus obeyed the Father, and what did it result in? A heavy-duty trial. He was beaten. He was mocked. You know what it says in the Old Testament? It says He was beaten beyond recognition and marred like no other man. Now, what does that mean? That means that in the history of mankind, nobody has taken the abuse that Jesus took. Nobody. At the cross, you know these Hollywood pictures you see where Jesus is being crucified and there's a little drop of blood coming down? That's not it. He was beaten beyond recognition. We've talked about this enough time this morning, but He was scourged and scourging left most people dead. By the third or fourth lash and He took 39. Your your organs were open for just beating. You bled. Most people bled to death hanging around that stake. They beat Him. They mocked Him. They scourged Him. He was marred beyond recognition. He went to the cross. His back was stuck against that hardwood. Every time He breathed in and out, it would rip and tear away at what was left of His exposed body. And why did he do that? Because he loves you. What a wonderful and great God that we serve. They beat him, and they, they blast, they hit him, and they said, prophesy. And can you imagine? They, they stood back, and Jesus was blindfolded, and they came up, and they hit him in the face and said, tell us who hit you. And Jesus didn't smoke him, which he could have. And if I had had that power, toast, right? Oh, who, who hit him? Let me show you. I'll show you. You're a frog, man. I'm going to just wipe him out. But Jesus didn't do that. What did He do? I imagine that He even thought, you know what? Not only do I know who you are, but I'm going to go die for you because I love you. You're hitting me, I love you. You're mocking me, I love you. You're beating me, I love you. You're going to scourge me, I love you. You know what? No matter what you've done, if you don't remember anything from this morning's message, remember that He loves you. Verse 66, As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led Him into the council. If you are the Christ, tell us. But He said, If I tell you, you will not by no means believe. And if, and I, and if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that no matter what He said to them, they would not respond. He knew. He already knew their hearts were hard. He knew that whatever I tell you, you're not going to believe. You would think that these are the, remember the chief priest, he'd already taught in the synagogue many times. He had healed the man with a withered arm in the synagogue. He had healed the blind man and they had seen him. He had healed the lame man and they had seen him. He had raised Lazarus from the dead and they had seen Lazarus and they said, we've got to kill that guy. He's too good of a testimony. Dead guy's walking around. That's a testimony. We've got to get rid of that guy. And so instead of repenting, Jesus knew their hearts and He just knew that they were going to be used in the plan of the Father. Verse 70, Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And He said, You rightly say that I am. I like that. Are you the Son of God? Yes, I am. You know what? Every cult out there today will try to take away the deity of our Savior. They'll try to make Jesus less than He is. Let me tell you right now, He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is Almighty God. He is the Creator of the universe. He always has been. He always will be. And when we get to heaven, He is going to be the one there to greet us. Amen? Nobody else. And when people make Him less, cult. Pastor, cult. When you say that Jesus is less than God, you're done. You're a cult. You've denied Him. You can't just believe in a Jesus. You must believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Amen? He has to be God. He must be Savior. He must be Lord. He must be King. He must be Messiah. He must be the one that paid the price for us. He must be the only way to heaven. Any other Jesus that you believe in is not the Jesus of the Bible, and you've denied Him. You know, the Bible says that He elevates His Word even above His name. Why would He do that? Because people have taken the name of Jesus to be, you know, the brother of Satan. That's what the Mormons teach. They've taught him to be Michael the archangel. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. They've taught him to be the most elevated of the gurus. That's what the New Age movement teaches. But guess what? None of those is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Jesus of the Bible is God. Amen? He's our Lord, He's our Savior, and He's our King. And they said, What further testimony do we need for we have heard it ourselves from His own mouth? If The worship team will come up we'll review Real quickly, the religious leaders clearly understood that Jesus was proclaiming Himself to be God. God died for you and me. And here's the good news, you guys. He proved Himself to be God yet one more time. What did He do three days later? He rose from the dead. And you know what? All these other cults, you, you know what? You, started, you raised from the dead and did come talk to me. Right? Until you do, you're not, you can't match who our God is. You're not getting up out of the ground after you died. You're not not fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. You can't be God because there's only been one. So in review, conflict is coming. We all have choices to make. How are we going to respond? Like Judas, betraying Jesus because we seek after the world and make the world more important? Are we going to do it like Peter, denying Christ, trusting in the flesh, sitting with the enemy, pursuing physical comfort over obedience, having a distant walk instead of intimate fellowship? Are we going to be like Jesus when conflict comes? Are we going to trust in and be submitted to the Father? Are we going to bring our concerns to Him on our knees in prayer? And are we going to respond to His will in obedience? Remember, obedience and total submission to Christ will result in you being an alien here. And persecution will follow. I know that's not real popular to hear that at church. You live sold out for Christ, you're going to face persecution. But blessed are you when they will vile and persecute you for my name's sake. For so they did the prophets that went before you. You know what? If you're being persecuted, it just means God's using you. And isn't that a good thing? Amen? You're having an eternal impact. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, for your love and your infinite grace. Lord, and we do thank you, Lord, that you thought about us on the cross. Lord, we thank you that the value of something is determined by what was paid for it. And what was paid for each one of us is that you suffered and died that we might have eternal life. May not one person walk out of here without knowing for sure that they have that intimate relationship with you. Lord, if they've denied you or betrayed you or walked away from you, if they're following you at a distance, I pray, Lord, that they would know that you're standing right there with eyes of compassion, desiring, Lord, to draw them back into yourself. Lord, you're a loving a gracious and a merciful God. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Let's stand up and close the worship song.